to start tonight in Romans chapter 3, and Paul's going to answer a question. It kind of gives a good example of, you know, how we as human beings divided the Bible. If you remember, it was really scrolls. It wasn't divided into chapters and verses like we have it now. And you'll see what I mean when I read verse 1. So Romans chapter 3, verse 1. Here's what Paul says. What advantage then is there being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? And he's asking a question that ties back to chapter 2. Because remember, if you were here last week, it was all about chapter 2. Chapter 2 was like he was asking the Jews a lot of questions about putting too much faith in the law. And this verse kind of ties into that same mindset. Then he kind of answers it in verse 2. So verse 1, he says, what's the advantage? Verse 2, he says, there's much, much in every way. And he's going to give us an example. He says, first of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. And if you remember back to last week also, remember Paul told the Jewish people in the audience, he was talking to the early church, the Roman church, which was a mixed church of Gentiles and Jews. He said, God is impartial, there is no favorites, even though the Jews thought they were the favorites. So really in this verse 1, this question he's asking, what advantage is there being a Jew, it's kind of what I would call a rhetorical question. In other words, he's asking this question he doesn't really want you to answer. He's asking the question for effect. And he's going to answer it like we just read in verse 2. The Jews were the caretakers of God's word. And if you go back to Scripture, thinking once again, I talked about a scroll. There was no Bible yet. The New Testament was not recorded, most of it. It might have been written down in some letters, but it was still what I would call under construction. So the Jews had the scrolls, the Old Testament as we call it. They were the librarians or the record keepers. They had the word. They knew the word. They memorized the word. But if you remember from last week, and we'll see some of the same thing tonight, Paul was telling them, you know the word, but you're not keeping the word. You're not obeying it. So he's going to continue that train of thought tonight, I think. Let's read verse 3. He says, what if some were unfaithful? In other words, some of the Jews trying to keep the law. What if some of the Jews were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? What do you think? No, of course not. That's kind of like, once again, a rhetorical question. It's really a no-brainer. Of course not. And we know the reason because God never changes. We know that from Scripture. God is God. He never changes. His words don't change. This book doesn't change. It is, like Popeye said, I am what I am. God doesn't change. And these, these doubters, these unfaithful, really, if you think about the context of who he's talking to, this is the early church. Most of those Jews might have even doubted Jesus. So he's talking to the doubters, just like our world today is full of doubters. Isn't our world full of doubters? Wouldn't you agree with that? Well, let me ask you, the kind of king, it's sort of like a rhetorical question Paul just asked. If our world is full of doubters, does that make all of you and I doubters? Just because the world's full of them? No, it does not, because our faith, our knowledge is based on God's truth, which brings up our first main point if you're taking notes tonight. Our faith, and really God's faithfulness, is not based on opinions, not based on my opinion, it's not based on your opinion, I hate to tell you, it's for sure not based on the world's opinion. Our faith is based on God's facts. This is a book of facts. Nothing's been added, nothing's taken away, there's no mistakes in here, no matter what the world's opinion tells you, these are God's facts. This is what our faith is based on, God's facts. 
and it's not going to be nullified by people's unfaithfulness. So Paul's going to answer that question, and remember this is another rhetorical question, verse 4, let's read that one. Not at all, he's going to answer for us. No, it does not nullify God's faithfulness. Not at all. Let God be true, let, and every human being is a liar. Because we don't mean to lie, but we're all prone to exaggerate, kind of stretch the truth a little. If not, in these days, some people were outright lying about the gospel. But then he says, as it is written, and he's going to give us as it is written. Here's what it says. So that you may be proved right, that's you as God, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. So Paul says, as it is written. Well, I like to show us where is it written. Let's look. I made you a cheat sheet on screen. Here's where it's written. I think. One, there we go. One, two, three. Against you and you alone I have, sin, have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. Look what it says in that second part. This is where it's written. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me and all of you is just. Because God is just. He's a just God. So if we have sinned, there is a price to pay. And we'll get to it later. Jesus paid that price for us, but there is a price. And that's a great verse, by the way, because sometimes we think when we sin, we're sinning against our spouse, our friend, the person we've harmed. David says, I've sinned against God, and all sin is against God, not just the people I think I've sinned against. And he's also reminding us our own opinions don't matter. If I thought I didn't sin against God, I was wrong. God sees it as sin against himself. Let's look at a quote from Spurgeon. Um, sometimes I like a Spurgeon quote here and there, and this is a good one, I think. Once again, I'll put it on screen for us. Here's what Spurgeon said. If God says one thing through his word, and every man, every entire man in the whole world and woman, by the way, says another, look what it says. God is still true. Doesn't matter what anybody says. And all men and women are false. God speaks the truth. He cannot lie. God cannot change, and neither can his word. Remember, we studied Revelation. It says if you take anything away or add anything to it, there's a heavy price to pay. So God's word does not change no matter, once again, what the world opinion says. Let's read verse 5. Continue on. But if our unrighteousness, our sin, brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? Shall we say that God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? And then Paul in parentheses, he kind of explains what he's saying here. He says, I'm using a human argument. So in other words, Paul was hearing this. This was the human argument of the day, that my unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness, and it kind of sounds confusing, so let me reword it a little bit. What the people were saying and thinking was, if my sin leads to God showing his grace and mercy, why is God punishing me for making him look good? Why is God going to punish me? He gets to be graceful, merciful. It's going to show the world how forgiving he is. So why should God punish me for making him look good? Is that a good idea? No, I'll help you out. That is a bad idea because my sin does not make God look good by being more graceful when he forgives me. That's a classic example of what I would call blame shifting. You know, we all do this sometime. 
he did it, she did it, they said it, I didn't do anything, it's all that person's fault, you know, I'm innocent here. That's what the people of the day were saying. They were blaming God for their sinful behavior, kind of like what our world does nowadays. But if we get to Romans 6, 6, I'm not going to read a Romans verse that's stealing somebody else's verse ahead of time. Romans 6, 6 tells us we are no longer slaves to our sin. We have the freedom to say yes and no. Um, and we'll talk more about that later. Because what the people were trying to say is, I can help it. I can't help it. I'm a sinner. I hear that sometime now. Well, I'll hear another version that'll say, well, you know, my whole family... They've had a crime problem or an alcohol problem or a drug problem. It's in my genes. I've had people from certain ethnic groups tell me that everybody in my family's angry and I'm just angry. It's part of me. It's our culture. We are angry people. That is an excuse. I'm sorry. The Bible says exactly the opposite. That was the old you. And we'll get to a lot of that in Romans 6. But Paul doesn't mention here, but it kind of ties into a thing I mentioned last week, if you were here, what I called cheap grace. Because there's a big movement even right now in churches that pastors are teaching, churches are kind of believing it, that, you know, God is full of grace, he loves everybody, even if you sin, just come back next week and he'll forgive you. So there's no real challenge to live an upright lifestyle. There's no challenge to be righteous, because God will just forgive you. That's cheap grace because really you're cheapening what Jesus did on the cross. You're abusing God's forgiveness, and God is pretty smart. We talked about that last week, remember? And I say that jokingly, God is God. He knows everything. He knows if I'm sinning willfully and trying to use cheap grace as a way out. In other words, he'll catch me. I'm fooling nobody, even though I might be fooling my friends and neighbors. God knows because Jesus died at a high price, and God gave us his only son to pay that price. So he does not give us this cheap grace so I can freely sin some more. That's abusing the system that God designed. His grace is designed to help me and you change, and he's designed it to help us become more like Jesus. Not to keep repeating this same sinful, willful behavior. He's designed it to free us from that lifestyle. But how about we don't listen to me? How about we go to the Word? Remember, God's Word is all true. Let's look at a verse out of Titus. It'll kind of echo what I'm trying to say right now. Titus 2, 11 and 12, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, which is Jesus, that has offered salvation to all people. Look what it says in 12. This grace and this forgiveness, it teaches us to say no, to say no to ungodliness and world passions to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives next week and next month. Is that what it says? No, it says really now, to live godly, self-controlled, upright lives in this present age, which is today, tomorrow, next week, next month, till the day we die. So I can't just sin willfully and think I'm going to have some free grace next week. It's designed to make me more like Jesus. Not perfect, but I'm supposed to try. Try, not just take this free pass that I can't help it. It's not fair because God made me this way. We'll get to that more in a second too. How do we do that? Well, we have to help, have the help of the Holy Spirit. There's no way we can live that kind of lifestyle we just read about in Titus. The Holy Spirit, and once again, we'll see this pretty heavily in Romans chapter 6. The Holy Spirit empowers us to say no to sin. And it also tells us in Romans 6, 6, that our old life has been crucified. It's, it's Crucified means crucified, just like Jesus was crucified. 
it is put to death, which means it no longer has power over us. So then it becomes on me if I'm acting terribly like that. Galatians 5.16, I think we'll look at that one next. Here's what it says. Here's what God wants us to do. Walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, in other words. Then look what says it'll happen. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The Holy Spirit, will you, he will empower you to say no to those desires. You might have a desire, because remember it says desires. Desires may not go away, but now you have the ability to say no. That's the big difference Christianity brings, because the Holy Spirit is in you, giving you that little nudge saying, don't do that, don't do that, I'm going to elbow you in the ribs if you try that. I can still resist him and do it anyway, but he will at least nudge me, empower me, correct me. So if I willfully ignore that, then that becomes, once again, that's my willful disobedience. But before we read verse 6, let me go back to verse 5 just to refresh our memory. He said, basically, since God can use our sin for his glory, is God being unfair by bringing his wrath on us? That's kind of what the people were, were asking and wondering. In other words, if God looks good when I sin by giving me all this forgiveness and grace and mercy then it's really not fair that he punishes me for it. Look what Paul says. Now we'll read verse 6. Paul's going to answer that question. He says, certainly not. Certainly not God is not unfair or unjust in that. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue in verse 7, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Once again, that's blame shifting, making excuses, trying to point the fingers at a generational curse, things like that. Brings up our second main point if you're taking notes. Just because God can use our sin for his glory, and for example, I'll put behind us, think about Judas. God did use Judas. He used him for his glory because that was part of the plan of Jesus going to the cross. Somebody had to sell Jesus out. He didn't make Judas do it, but he allowed Judas to do it. Judas could have said no. It would have happened a different way. Jesus had to go there. But just because God can use a sinful action, like Pharaoh, like Judas, et cetera, et cetera, it doesn't excuse my wicked heart or my evil motive. There's no excuse. If I have an evil heart like Judas, like Pharaoh, and I'm wicked like they were, then that's on me. It's not God's fault for punishing me as a just and fair God. Let's keep reading verse 8. Paul says, Why not say then, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us all do evil so that good may result. Let's just sin freely and God will get glory. That's what the people were saying. Then he closes with, if they do that, their condemnation is just. Their condemnation is just. So Paul is really now pointing out the real problem. The problem is me and you. It's us. We are the problem. It's not the system. They're trying to blame the system that God made me this way and I can't help it. We are sinners, so we are the problem. We have to fix that problem, and we can't, but Jesus fixed it for us. But our sin does deserve punishment. That's why the cross had to be in the picture 
God's law has, there has to be a judgment. There has to be a penalty paid. And if we don't pay it, that means somebody has to. Jesus paid it all, right? We sing that all the time. But here's, to me, what's so inappropriate about this train of thought here. These people are on this kind of crazy train of thought. We've seen it now two or three verses in a row. That sin somehow equals glory. My sin equals God's glory. That's a crazy idea, if you ask me. But it was the thought of the day. Well, here's my take on it. Only a churchgoer, like all of us, and I put myself in the churchgoer category, by the way, because I sit in the same seats you do in most of the services. That's a churchgoer's dumb idea. And here's why. If you're an unbeliever, you don't believe in God, so why would you think or care if he got any glory? So an unbeliever would never say that. They don't care anyway. That's my first reason. And really the second reason, they don't feel the need to make any excuses for their sin. They don't think they're sinning. They're just living their life, having fun. They're living completely free in their own minds. They're not in bondage to anything. They're having a happy-go-lucky, sin-filled life. So it wouldn't be a pagan, sinful person like you might think that's got these crazy ideas. These are churchgoers saying this, saying, my sin brings God glory. Only a churchgoer would come up with such a stupid idea. I'm sorry. So it's just kind of makes you shake your head. But this is the, remember Paul is talking, I keep saying it week after week, to the early church. He's not preaching an evangelistic crusade out in town. He's talking to the early church at Rome. Let's keep reading, verse 9. He says, then what should we conclude? With all these sinful ideas, what should we conclude? Do we have any advantage? In other words, now he's back to the Jews. Do we Jews have any advantage? He's going to answer his own question. Not at all. We don't have any advantage at all. We've already made the charge last week that the Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin, and they're also under the power of judgment because of that. And he's talking once again to the Jews now. He's trying to tell the Jews, you're not special. You're sinning just like these Gentiles you're pointing fingers at. And if you were here last week, remember the Jews thought the Gentiles were doing worse? They're saying, thank God I'm not like those Gentiles over there. And they thought they got a free pass by having Abraham's DNA in their vein. Well, when we get down to verse 22, we'll see that Paul's going to give the answer of how to get out of this mess. But first we're going to read verse 10 and 10, 11. 10, 11. So, and by the way, Really, verses, I'm going to read 10 to 11 together. They're going to read 12 through 18 as one big chunk. Warren Wiersbe, if you know who that is, he's kind of a famous Bible commentator, has some great Bible studies, has books in our bookstore. He called verse 10 through 22 an x-ray of an unbeliever, like a head-to-toe exam, a head-to-toe x-ray, because it talks about body parts. You'll see when I read it. But let's read 10 to 11 together. It says, as it is written, there is no one righteous... Not even one. The only one was Jesus, by the way. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. And what he means is, by the way, a lot of us, we we try to be righteous. We try to behave well. We try to seek God. We try to understand his word. That's why you're here on Wednesday night learning with me. But we don't do it perfectly. We can't say we have full compliance. That's what Paul's saying. You're trying, but you're not ever going to make it because it would take 100%, and nobody can do it. That's why the law failed. So none are righteous, no matter how hard we ever try. And some people, if if I've said that before in the past, somebody asked me one time, well, what about Adam? What about Adam? You know, because we all know that's where it all went south when they ate in the garden. Well, 
you have to think about Adam. Adam was innocent, not righteous. Innocent. And that's why God told him, stay away from that tree, don't go near the tree. And by the way, for the guys in the room, he told Adam, not Eve, that. People want to blame Eve sometime for giving you know, Adam the apple. Who did God talk to, Adam or Eve? Adam. So, guys, it's on us. I'm sorry. But Adam was innocent, not righteous. First chance he got, what'd he do? He sinned. Is that righteous? No. Literally, first chance he sinned. When he was clearly told, not like we're told. You know, we get this kind of when God speaks, it's an inner feeling. It's kind of like this compulsion to do something. Adam literally heard God say, don't go near that tree. What'd he do? Go near the tree. Hung around the tree, got with the vomit tree, looked at the tree, covered the tree. He was all near the tree when he was supposed to be around. So Adam was innocent, not righteous. Now let's read verse 12 through 18 all at once. Verse 12. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. In other words, they're gossiping. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. And here's the real problem, verse 18. We're going to park on this one in a minute. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is God describing his chosen people. He's describing Israel when God's compelled this to be written. But verse 18 is our real key. Verse 18 says, the people that are described here, the people in the early church, even people in our churches, in our modern world, they don't have a healthy fear of the Lord. They don't really, what I mean by that, you know, I'm not talking we're hiding from God like Adam and Eve when they sin, they wanted to get fig leaves and cover up. God is not a mean God that wants to punish us. What I mean by this fear, it's a healthy fear of awe and respect. Like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe the God of the universe is allowing me in his kingdom. I am so thankful. I worship you. I love you. I just want to be respectful to you, Lord. That's the fear we're talking. A healthy fear, a good fear of awe and respect and honor and praise and worship. The people behaving badly in those verses didn't have that. That's why they were behaving so badly. Brings up our third thing to write down if you're taking notes. Because this is also confusing, I think, to the world. We can have this healthy fear I just described and, and the joy of the Lord at the same time. They go together because what the world will tell you, your God is a mean God. He's all about punishment and discipline. Christianity is no fun. Some of us may have thought that ourselves before we got saved. But it's not Christianity the most fun lifestyle there is in the universe. The people that don't have what you have are missing out. But the world tries to tell you Satan is smart, too. And we say God is the smartest of all, but Satan's pretty tricky. Remember, he was an angelic being at one point. He knows how to lie. That's his main motive is to kill, steal, and destroy and lie about it the whole time. He wants to lie to us and say, you can't have any joy if you have this fear. God wants us to have both at the same time. A healthy fear, which is just respect and all but also joy and be happy like we're doing here tonight when we were praising the Lord earlier. But here's the thing to remember too. We will never have that joy and fear at the same time if we're living a habitual, willing, sinful lifestyle. 
If my, ha- if my life is full of secret sin that I think nobody knows about, I will have zero joy in the Lord, zero. I might be fearful, but really that's more the unhealthy fear because I know I'm doing wrong, I know I'm behaving badly, I'm more scared of the God that's going to catch me someday for behaving this way, and I'll never have any joy. The only joy comes by obeying the Lord and having this healthy respect and awe. Let's keep reading. Verse 19. Here's what 19 says. Now, we know that whatever the law says, which would have been the Old Testament scrolls, it says to those who are under the law, or the Jews, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Now, remember, this kind of ties in with that whole theory that God's going to punish the Gentiles more than the Jews. The Jews are special. We've got the law. We have the law. These guys don't. And the early church was a mixed audience of kind of Jewish early believers that were now Christians, but they were still some of them clinging on to that law stuff. So look what he says in verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, this tells us what the law is really for, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Because the law is really unkeepable, and God knew that. He gave the law as like the early temporary way that was pointing to Jesus, a better way. Because nobody can keep it. Because here's what the law really said, and and this is the old covenant, by the way. This is the old, Old Testament covenant. God told the people, keep the law, but when you fail, and you're going to fail, when you fail, kill an animal. Keep the law. When you fail, kill an animal. That'll fix your failure. Then next week, come do it again. And nobody could keep it. Only Jesus was sinless. Because you'd have to be sinless to keep the law. It's really not possible. That's why he gave us a better way. Because really the law is designed to make us all ask the thing I just said. Is there not a better way than killing all these animals? I can't do this. The law was designed to make us cry out to God, and God, is there any other way? Yes, my son Jesus, that's your new way. It's designed to point us to the gospel, to the point us to Jesus, which brings up our next point if you're taking notes. Keeping the law is not the way to salvation. It's not. Even if you, because some people wonder, what if I kept it today? Well, could the Old Testament people do it? No. Can you do it today? No, because you're going to sin. You'll be killing animals in your backyard and making an altar, and your neighbors will think you're nuts. And the PETA people might come arrest you, by the way, too, for it. So that's the old way. The new way is Jesus. Keeping the law is not the way to salvation, even in modern times. And it's the new covenant. Everything changed at the cross, and it's now Jesus. Paul's going to tell us that in our next verse. Let's read verse 21. But now, in other words, we're out of the old system. But now. But now we're in the new covenant. That's what he really means. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, that's Jesus, to which the law and the prophets testify. So the new way, he's trying to remind the people, I told you and told you and told you there'd be a better way, and the law and the prophets testify to it. He's trying to describe there's a new covenant. But he says, apart from the law. What does he mean, apart from the law? Really, he means 
you can't add to the law. Because some of the Jews of this day, they were trying to take the law, add Jesus to it, and say, I've got the law plus Jesus. I think I'm saved now. Paul says, no, it's apart from the law. Let's look on screen what apart from the law kind of means. It's apart from trying to get there by killing animals. No rituals. It's apart from that. You can't add that back into Jesus. It's also apart from trying to be a good person. You cannot be good enough. You'd have to make 100 on the test, and nobody can make 100. It's a perfection. Nobody's good enough. So it's apart from that. It's also apart from anything we could ever do to earn it. It's a free gift. That's why it's grace. It's a gift. You can't earn it. You can't be good enough. You can't get there. Even killing animals won't help you anymore. You've got to do the new way. And the new way, you just say yes. There's no work at all. Just yes. Yes, Lord. I want to have your son Jesus in my life. That's all that's required. So it's apart from the old system. Don't add anything to the mix is what Paul's trying to tell the Jews. But here's the thing we have to remember. It was part of the plan all along. Because some people almost kind of get on this rabbit trail of like, well, God had plan A, that was the law, and since it didn't work, he had to come up with plan B. That's not how it worked. It was Jesus the whole time. Plan A was just to steer the Jews toward Jesus, and they missed it. They missed the whole concept. Remember, he wasn't the right Messiah. He was the wrong guy. We want the guy that's going to conquer Rome, get all these invaders out of our country. We want a political hero, a, a warlike guy that's going to evict everybody. They missed it. But Paul just reminded them, the law and the prophets testify. I could pull up a billion examples, it seems like, but I just picked one. Let's look at Isaiah 53, 11. This is a perfect example of a prophet testifying. And it's so crystal clear, it makes you wonder how they missed it. Look what it says. My righteous servant, Jesus, will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. But there's verse after verse after verse like that. I just picked that one because I kind of like that one. They missed it. They were so blinded by their own superiority complex, the Pharisees, and then they had all the other Jews believing it, that Jesus was not the right guy. He's a good prophet, but he's not the Messiah. Paul's reminding them, God told you through the prophets. He told you through Scripture. There's verse after verse in the scrolls. And you can almost imagine Paul, because remember, Paul was a Pharisee. He knows those. He was probably getting verse after verse and pointing them out to them. That's how he converted some of the Jews. Verse 22, we just read that verse in Isaiah that said, Jesus makes us righteous. Verse 22, we're going to see how. Let's read 22 together. It says, this righteousness, our right, your righteousness, mine, it's given through faith in Jesus Christ. To who? All who believe. So if you believe tonight, you're in God's eyes righteous. If you don't believe yet, maybe this sermon will touch your heart. Come down and see me after tonight's over, and I'd love to pray with you, talk to you, encourage you, and you can give your heart to Jesus right here, right now, at the end of tonight. But let's keep reading. Look what it says to, next. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. And what he's trying to tell the whole audience, you've all got to get there through Jesus. Forget about the law. Forget about the old way. It's Jesus or else. It's my way or the highway, as I say it sometimes. So... We can be made righteous in God's eyes, and I'll explain that in a second, through 
Jesus. It's through faith in Jesus. The verse we just read, through faith, because it's not by faith, in other words. There's a big difference. It sounds almost the same, by faith, through faith. It's written through faith. Well, what would be the difference, you might wonder. That's a great question, by the way, even though you didn't ask me, but I'll tell you anyway. By faith would be somehow I've earned it. By my faith, I've acquired this. Something how I had something to do with it, if it was by my faith. If it's through faith in Jesus, that's grace. It's back to the free gift thing. It's a gift. I don't have to earn it. I don't have to do anything. I just have to say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. You are my God, like we all said when we started tonight. You are my God. That's what's required. It's through faith. Then it closes that verse 22, to all who believe. It's all who believe in Jesus. Let's read 23. 23. And we know this from other verses that say similar. For all have sinned, all of us in this room have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We need a better way. 24 says, all who are justified freely by his grace, his free gift through redemption that came by Christ Jesus on the cross. I add a few words there, but that's what Paul means. It's, we're justified freely by the grace of God by the work of Jesus on the cross. So what does justification mean? We kind of banner that around at church sometime. Well, you didn't really ask once again, but I'm going to help you out anyway. Let's look at justified. Here's what it really means. We have all talked about tonight how God is just. In other words, he's fair, he's honest, he's just. God is the righteous judge, and he's proclaiming to everybody that would listen that me and you, if we believe in Christ, we're now righteous. But look at the second point. God sees us. He's not just proclaiming it. He sees all of us as sinless, as righteous, even though we're really still sinners. We're going to make mistakes tomorrow, maybe later tonight if we're not careful. But because we are now in Christ and the Holy Spirit is in us, we have entered this right relationship. So God sees us as sinless. That's kind of hard to get your head around almost because we know we're not. We know we're not really great people at our, at our core. We try, but we're still going to get angry. We're still going to say things we don't mean to. We're still going to misbehave every now and then because we're people. People make mistakes. But God sees us as Jesus. He sees us as sinless. And it's not just sinless. It's like we never did it. That's what's also hard to get your head around. It's not just that God forgave it. In God's eyes, it never happened. Get your head around that one. Good luck with that. Then look at the last one, number three. We got to be careful, though. It doesn't give us this license to sin. It doesn't excuse our sin. It doesn't ignore our sin. It doesn't endorse our sin. It just changes how God himself sees our sin. He sees us as sinless, as sinless as Jesus. That's just hard for me to get my... God looks at me and sees Jesus. God looks at you and sees Jesus. Isn't that kind of hard to comprehend almost? Because we know we're not Jesus. Don't you know that? I know that. You know I'm not, and I know you're not. But in God's eyes, we are. He sees his son when he looks at us because of what Jesus did. So it kind of brings up the question. We kind of got it through that little illustration, but then what really changed? And I kind of gave it away with that little semi-mini sermon I just gave you. 
It's your fifth main point if you're taking notes. Last one. God sees our sin is fully punished. I didn't bring that part up yet. Somebody had to pay. Remember I told you there's always a price. God is just. That means there's a punishment required. Even though we didn't pay it, somebody had to. So God sees our sin is fully punished, and Christ took that penalty for us. He paid it. He became our substitute on the cross. But there's also a verse, I mean a word in that verse 23, redemption. It says redemption that I kind of blew past because I focused on some of their justified stuff. What does redeem mean? Well, really, and we've heard it before in church probably, it means to be bought back at a price, to be purchased, bought back. And there's a couple of different Greek words. The, the connotation Paul's using in this sentence, it's two specific things. Because there's a story about Boaz and Ruth. There's a kinsman redeemer. That's another redemption. But this is a specific redemption Paul's using the word right now. It means purchase of a slave. In other words, you're freeing a slave. Or you're buying back a captured prisoner of war. So it's very specific redemption. A slave is now set free, or you're freeing a prisoner of war. So really, when it says Jesus redeemed us, what it really means is we were slaves, and we know by Scripture we were slaves to our sin before we were saved, but also we were prisoners of war, and the war was being led by Satan. So now we're redeemed. We've had redemption. We're free from that. We're no longer in bondage, and I keep mentioning Romans 6. Romans 6 says we're freed from the bondage of that sin nature. Because sometimes at church you'll hear about a sin nature. Yes, we have urges to sin. Yes, we're always going to fight temptation. Yes, we're going to have these impulses. But Scripture says we put that old self to death. It was crucified. So we're freed from the control. We are now empowered to say no to that lifestyle. We're freed from the bondage of sin. We're freed from the bondage of the Old Testament law. So it's really a double freedom. Slavery, bondage, gone. We'll see that in Galatians. Let's look at another verse on screen. Galatians 4. God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. Because remember, Jesus was a Jew. God sent him to what? Buy freedom for us. Purchase us. Buy us freedom who were once slaves to the law also slaves to sin, so that he could adopt us as his own children. That's why we were able to be adopted. There had to be a price paid first. We had to be seen in God's eyes as sinless. That's what the cross did. Like, once again, it never happened. Let's read verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. We'll talk about that word in a second through the shedding of his blood, to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance he had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. And if you were here last week, remember forbearance is like a term you'll see in mortgages sometime. You don't hear it much in common language unless you're an accountant. But it really means a paused debt. Not a forgiven, a wiped out debt. The debt is paused. Because of our sin, our debt was still due. Jesus paid it, but it wasn't really gone until he paid it. It had to be paid. That's what a just God required. But let's talk about this atonement. You hear that word sometime at church, and um, 
it really ties to a verse um, out of Leviticus, and we'll get to that in a second. But you know the backstory before. I like to, you know, I'm the kind of the backstory guy. I joke around sometime with you. I'm the backstory pastor. This is a great backstory if you, if you hang with me a second. One day a year, there was a day in Jewish culture called the Day of Atonement. And it was to pay for the sins of the entire nation. It's for the whole people. And they would bring a bull and two goats into the temple. The bull they would kill, put his blood on the certain part of the altar I'll get to in a second. They would kill one of the goats, sacrifice him. His blood went the same place. The other goat was called the scapegoat because they would pray him and put all their sins on this other goat, let him loose, and he would take all the sins in the wilderness. He would escape, and that's where we get our word, a scapegoat. But let's talk more about the atonement. We're not talking about scapegoats tonight. Atonement. Let's look at the verse now. And it was one day a year. One day a year this would happen. This is the day. He shall, and that's the high priest, he shall slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people, for the whole nation's sin, take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood, which was a couple of verses ago. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. And I'll explain that in another second. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion, the sin, all your long sin of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. This atonement cover is literally the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. It's called the atonement cover. It's the cover of the Ark. They put the blood of those two animals on it. One day a year, you've heard this story since you've grown up in church, or if you were new to church, you've probably still heard it. Remember we all know the story, the high priest would go in the Holy of Holies one day a year. This is the day he goes in. This is what he's doing in there. We also know the story, or if you don't, I'll tell you now, they would literally tie a rope on his leg because even he could mess up and touch the wrong stuff. There was a prescribed order under the law what he was supposed to do, which is what we just read. If he goofed off in there and touched the wrong thing, he would die. And he had a bell on his kind of sleeve, and the bell would ring as long as he was doing this blood and working. It would be like, ring, 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 ring. If the bell went quiet, they'd give him a minute. Uh-oh, Dave's dead. Get him out of there. And they would pull that rope. One day a year, he went in this inner room, the Holy of Holies. What he was doing was what you just read. So now you know the backstory of that inner room day. It was the Day of Atonement. Now tie that to our verse. Let me read that verse again since now we know what the backstory is. Verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement to pay for the people's sins for the whole year, for the whole, really our whole life, through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, his pausing of our sin debt, he left the sins we committed beforehand unpunished. Jesus paid the price just like that bull, just like that goat on the Day of Atonement. He is our atoning sacrifice. He completed the old way is another way to put that. But that verse also says God presented Christ. He presented him to us. This is a great reminder that God orchestrated the whole plan B, as some people say. It's not a plan B. It was the plan all along. He presented Christ as an atoning sacrifice. He knew the law was not going to work. He knew we were sinful people and could never do it. 
It was just to point the Old Testament people to Jesus. A payment was still due. There had to be blood on that atonement cover, and symbolically, Jesus did that for us on the cross. Let's read our last verse, verse 26. He did that, God, to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, and here's the key, to be just and also the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So he's just and he justifies, which kind of sounds similar, but let me explain. Just means he has to punish every sinner. That's just. If, it's, if anybody gets off lightly or freely, gets off scot-free, that would not be just, would it? It wouldn't be fair if there was a different standard. So every sinner has to be punished. And really the penalty is death, by the way. But justifies means every guilty sinner is pardoned. So he justly punished everybody, also justified us by pardoning us at the same time. Only God could do such a thing. Make us pay, but also let us off the hook at the same time. It was all done through Jesus. The only way. The only way possible. Because once again, I said this while ago, justified really means not we see it sometimes as not guilty, because you'll see that as not guilty. Really, God is saying it never happened. It's not just not guilty. It's like we never did it. That's what Jesus' death really accomplished. So we're going to save verses 27 through 30 for next week as we do chapter 4, because really, I started tonight with saying we, we as mankind divide the Bible up. It was scrolls. Some places we didn't chop it up so hot, I would say. So 27 through 30 really kind of fit better with the concept next week of faith. Next week's a lot about faith. So we're going to pray, but aren't you glad Jesus paid that price? He fulfilled, I mean, that's kind of a, once again, that's a rhetorical question, by the way. I started the night with the rhetorical questions, and now I'm going to end with one. Of course we're glad about that. But look how now, I hope you understand a little better, how he completed the Old Testament requirements. He paid that atonement price that was required, and we are now freed from sin, freed from bondage, freed from sin. It's a much better way. Our only requirement, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. So maybe tonight some of you need to say yes, Lord. Maybe you're watching online. There's a number you can call. If you're here live in the commons in the room, come find me as we pray in a second. I'll be glad to pray with you if you need to put your heart right with Jesus. It's not magic prayer. It's just you saying, yes, Lord, that's all that's required. It's a free gift. So let's pray. Lord, tonight, we love you so much. And as we learned tonight, you paid the price that we could never pay. You paid the ultimate price that was required, which is the penalty of blood and death. So, Father, thank you for sending Jesus. Jesus, thank you for sending the Holy Spirit to empower and equip us to be our counselor, our encourager, our helper, Lord. Lord, you are just so good to us, and we don't deserve it. So, Lord, let us all just keep you in focus, keep you in mind, and say, yes, Lord, on a daily basis. Lord, help us each day to be more like you. In Jesus' name we pray. We all said, amen. amen.